And for the rest of us, I invite us to open our Bibles to Luke chapter 4. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 30. And if you're using the Bible in the row in front of you, that will be on page 727 in that Bible. We're working our way through the story of Jesus as uh, the Gospel of Luke tells it. And um, first we saw that Luke gave us a lot of background about Jesus. We looked at much of that during Advent leading up to uh, the Christmas season. And then last week we finally got to meet Jesus up close and, and in a private sort of way. And we saw Jesus' inner heart. We saw the kind of temptations that, that he wrestled with. And, and the character with which he resisted those temptations. Well, now today, finally, we're going to see Jesus step onto the public stage and to begin his ministry. And if you ask me, this opening story of Jesus' public ministry is shocking. It, it makes me wonder what the Holy Spirit was thinking when he inspired Luke to highlight this story right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry as Jesus' public debut. After all, this wasn't actually the first thing that happened when Jesus went public. Luke tells us in verses 14 to 15 that Jesus had already been teaching in various towns and that his popularity was growing rapidly. In verse 23, we learn that Jesus had been doing miracles over in a town called Capernaum. And Mark and Matthew, in their version of the gospel, they tell us more about those early events. They don't have Jesus showing up in his own synagogue in Nazareth until Mark 6 and Matthew 13. But Luke, it seems, takes this later event and pulls it forward and uses it to begin his public introduction to Jesus. The gospel writers have freedom to reorganize the order of events, by the way. They, they, they are not trying to give us a strict chronology of what happened first and then second and then third, but rather they're selecting certain events. To some extent, they're rearranging them in order to give an accurate portrayal of Jesus and to bring out themes to make points that they want to make, out, make about Jesus in their gospel. So what point is Luke trying to make by putting this shocking story right up front? Also, why does Luke go into all the gory details, details which Mar Matthew and Mark spare us? I mean, Matthew and Mark do tell us that Jesus was rejected in his hometown and, and that he couldn't do many miracles there. But they don't tell us what Jesus said that offended his own people. Nor do they tell us the reason that Jesus couldn't do many miracles was because his own friends and family and neighbors ran him out of town and tried to kill him. Why does Luke share all this? And why does he do it right at the beginning of his public introduction to Jesus? I mean, think about it. Nazareth, as far as we know, was a small town of maybe 500 or less. Like most other small country towns, everyone is probably a distant cousin of everyone else. Everyone has known everyone else forever, and they know each other's business. And so probably everyone in this town has known Jesus and his family since he was a boy. Many of them are probably in some way related to him. And so isn't it kind of embarrassing that so early in Jesus' ministry, his own family, friends and neighbors who know him best are trying to kill him? And why are they trying to kill him? What could 
they be so absolutely furious about that they react so viciously and violently against their own kith and kin? Well, to understand, we have to understand their politics. You see, much like Arizona and Texas and Southern California, Nazareth was in a border region. And so as best we can tell, Nazareth was passionately Jewish, yet it was just a few miles from Sepphoris, a large city which had strong Roman influences. Trade routes also passed by in that area, we know, bringing Nazareth into contact with, with uh, foreigners from all over the Roman Empire. And how did Nazareth feel about these outside influences? Well, we're going to see in today's story, and, and along with that, as best scholars can tell, they felt a lot like Texans feel when the Mexicans cross over the border into their state and take their jobs. Only um, often in Texas, the Texans are the rich and the powerful ones, and the Mexicans are the poor and needy ones. But in Nazareth, it was just the opposite way around. In Nazareth, it was the Romans who were the rich and, and powerful foreign intruders who were violently oppressing the poor native Nazarenes. The, the Romans were exploiting them economically so that they were stuck in grinding poverty. And, and you can be sure that it was still fresh in the minds of, of those in Nazareth that around the year of Jesus' birth, historians tell us, the people of Sepphoris, again just a few miles from Nazareth, in their desperation had re re risen up in rebellion against Rome. And in response, Rome had come in vengeance, had burned down the city of Sepphoris, had taken away much of the population into brutal slavery, never to, seen again, to be seen again by their friends and neighbors, and had also crucified 2,000 of the revolutionaries as a grim lesson to any other would-be rebels. That happened right on the doorstep of Nazareth. You can, imagine that, you can imagine what kind of bad blood and resentment that added to the Jews' already hatred of the Romans. So that begins to give us an idea of the politics of Nazareth. And the hatred that these folks had for Rome was fueled by their scriptures. After all, God was on the side of the Jews, right? And uh, one portion of scripture that was especially meaningful to the Jews at this time was the second half of the book of Isaiah. We've already seen that John the Baptist anchored his ministry in Isaiah chapter 40, the announcement of a new exodus out of oppression and captivity into God's freedom. And today, Luke forefronts another text from this part of Isaiah, which Jesus claims is the foundation of his calling. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Does this sound like it might be good news to the oppressed people like the people in Nazareth? A people who are longing for a new exodus when they'll be rid of the hated Romans and, and set free to live and to follow their God in peace? Well, if you keep reading in Isaiah 61, there's even more good news there. Skipping down to verse 5, it says, Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and your vineyards. Verse 6, 
And you will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your abundance. Are you getting the picture? According to Isaiah, God was going to dramatically reverse the fortunes of his people. The dreaded Gentile Romans were going to go down. And the Jews were going to be lifted up. God would raise up his people. He would make them great and powerful. And then it would be the Romans who would be washing their dishes and cleaning their houses and mowing their lawns. Or at least tending their sheep and working their fields for them. Can you see how these Isaiah texts would be loved and would be treasured by the Jewish people? Quietly read at dinner tables when the Romans aren't listening and, and to children at night. Um, as the Jews struggled in, in their oppression, but, but as they kept up hope, as they, they looked forward to that day when God would send his Messiah to, to tip the scales, to, to right the wrongs, to, to take down the Gentiles and raise up the Jews. These were the kind of texts that, that, refu that fueled rebellions like the ones that the Romans had put down years before in Sepphoris. These texts defined the politics of those like the Nazarenes. And this is the sort of political text that Jesus quotes in the synagogue that day in Nazareth. Only Jesus doesn't read the text right. We may not realize that because we're not so familiar with Isaiah, but um, those people were. And they knew full well that Jesus made three changes to that important text as he read it. And those changes got the attention of the congregation that day. First, Jesus leaves out a line when he reads the text. The Isaiah text reads in the third line to proclaim good news to the poor, but then Jesus leaves out the bind up the brokenhearted part. Why? Second, Jesus adds a line to his reading. Verse 18, at the end, Jesus says, to set the oppressed free. That's not actually in Isaiah 61, which Jesus is reading. No, Jesus actually imports it from a few chapters back from Isaiah 58, 6. Again, why? Third, Jesus doesn't finish reading the Isaiah passage. In verse 19, he breaks off right in the middle of a verse, Isaiah 61, 2. He reads the proclaim the year of the Lord's favor part, but he leaves off the part which goes on and the day of vengeance of our God, which is the part where the Romans were supposed to get what they had coming to them. And then Jesus doesn't read any further. He doesn't read any of the good stuff about how the Jews will be raised up and the Gentiles brought low and the Gentiles are supposed to shine the Jews' shoes. He doesn't read that part. Now, why does Jesus make these changes? What's he trying to say? And how does it contribute to the people of Nazareth dragging him out of town to murder him before all is said and done? Well, let's take a look at what Jesus is doing here. I've mentioned to you before that the Jewish people then didn't think in logical outlines like we do today. You know, we tend to talk about A, and then under A we give subpoints 1, 2, and 3, and then we go on to B and we do the same thing. We think linearly, logically. The Jews didn't think that way. Rather, they thought in something that's called chiasms. A chiasm is where you talk about A, and then you go on and you talk about B, and then you talk about C. But all the while, you're working up to D, which is the main point. 
And then, and then after you share the main point, you, you go back and you rehash all the previous points you made in reverse order. You go back to C, and then you go back to B, and then you go back to A. And we see this in our passage as Luke introduces Jesus' reading of, of this Isaiah passage in, our, in the synagogue that day. Notice A, Jesus stands up. Then B, the scroll is handed to him. Then C, he unrolls the scroll. And then here's the key, D, often it's marked with an X. He reads the text. Then, after he reads the text, we go back to C. He rolls up the scroll. B, he hands it back to the attendant. And then A, he sits back down. It's a chiasm. But the key thing to realize in this text is that there's a second chiasm within this chiasm when Jesus reads the Isaiah passage. When Jesus reads the Isaiah text, he changes the text to turn it into a chiasm. That's why he leaves out some lines and adds a line as well. Let's take a look. I've translated the text literally this time because it helps us to see the parallel words in the original Greek language. Jesus begins, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. And then here's the chiasm. A, to proclaim good news to the poor. B, he has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives. And then here's the key point at the center and recovery of sight for the blind. And then he goes back to B, and, and um, literally it reads, to send the oppressed in freedom. And then A, finally, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So do you see what Jesus has done to this familiar Isaiah text? He's done three things. First, he's highlighted the idea of proclamation. Jesus has come to proclaim, to announce, to preach good news. Good news for the poor and good news about the year of the Lord's favor, which many interpreters believe refers to the Jubilee year of the Old Testament in Leviticus 25. When all debt, debts were forgiven, slaves were set free, and everyone had a fresh start and a new beginning. That's sure what the people of Nazareth would like, right? Second, Jesus has highlighted the idea of his being sent to bring freedom from oppression. Freedom for captives, freedom for the oppressed. That sounds good, too. That sounds like freedom for the Jews from the Romans. And then third, Jesus has highlighted that as the key to this good news, the key to this freedom, that the blind will recover their sight. That's the center of the chiasm, and as we'll see a little bit later, that's the key to this passage. All right, but how do the people of Nazareth respond to what Jesus is saying here? Well, some of it sounds good to them. After all, they love this passage already, and Jesus highlights some of the parts about the, that they love about the good news for the poor, freedom for the oppressed. This is what they've been longing for. This is when God would anoint his Messiah to, to reverse their fortunes, to raise them up, and to bring down their hated Roman oppressors. Isn't that what Jesus' own mother Mary celebrated in her song that we looked at back during Advent in Luke 1? In the coming of her son, she celebrated that God has brought down rulers from their thrones and lifted up the humble. That God has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. And we've seen throughout Luke so far that, that this is, is what Jesus came to do, right? 
he, he came for the poor and for the marginalized, for people like Mary, for the lowly shepherds we saw at Christmas time. Well, Jesus came, and, uh, and as he came, he was bringing down or, or passing over the rich and the powerful, it seemed. And we've noted that, that this strong theme in Luke so far almost sounds like a social gospel. It almost sounds like liberation theology. Like as far as Luke is concerned, it almost seems like it's the poor whom God loves and it's the rich and powerful who are, who are wicked, who are God's enemies. And guess what? The, the people of Nazareth are good with this. They like this because they know that they are the poor and, and that the hated Romans and their cronies are, are the rich. There's just one thing, though, about Jesus' synagogue sermon that throws the people of Nazareth that morning. And that's verse 21. Jesus says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus is saying, Isaiah 61 is talking about me. I am the one the Spirit is upon. I am the one God has anointed to fulfill all of these glorious, grand, end of time, heaven come to earth promises that we read about in Isaiah 61. You, Jesus? You're just Jesus. We grew up with you. You're just a regular guy like us. Sure, we hear God has given you some kind of special gift and that you're doing some fancy tricks making a name for yourself out there. But the one, the Messiah, God's chosen, you can't be. Verse 22 says, All people spoke well of him, and they were amazed at his gracious words. That actually is not necessarily the best translation, because the Greek is a bit more ambiguous than that. Perhaps a better translation would be, They spoke about him and were amazed. Because the Greek can mean that they spoke well of him, but it could also mean that they spoke against him. And uh, only the context can help us decide which it is. And so it may be that Luke wants it a bit ambiguous to build the suspense because there's probably a struggle going on here in the synagogue within the hearts of the people. On the one hand, they're hearing good news here. They're, the news that they've been longing to hear their whole lives. News of rescue, news of freedom, God's favor, God's deliverance. But on the other hand, who is this local boy claiming to be? The mighty one through whom God would, would come and do his work? Hard to believe. Well, Jesus isn't done. He doesn't leave us in suspense for long. Because if the people of Nazareth are on the fence about who he's claiming to be, he's about to push them off with what he says next. He says, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum, a nearby town. You know what they say, right? The, the cobbler's own kids are always the ones who go barefoot. The, uh, the uh, contractor's house is always the one with the leaky roof, right? Because the men are always out. They're taking care of everyone else and they're overlooking their own family back at home, right? That's what, that's what uh, Jesus' home, that's how Jesus' hometown friends feel. What about us, Jesus? What, um, what we're hearing you can do out there, do it here for us. Share the blessing with, with your own people. But Jesus replies, no, no prophet is ever accepted in his hometown. In other words, I could show you the miracles, but, but you aren't going to really accept the message I proclaim with them. 
Because you want to see the show, you want to receive the blessings, but you won't want to take my word, my message seriously. Because you think you know who I am. But in fact, you don't. And further, your politics are blinding you to why I've come. Remember, that's the key point of, of the text Jesus read, the way he read it as a chiasm. He has come to open the eyes of the blind. But, but if you won't realize you're blind, blind to who Jesus really is, and blind to why he's come and what he intends to accomplish, then you're going to be stuck in the dark. Then Jesus goes on by telling two stories from the most dark and depraved era of Judas, of Israel's um, history. The days of wicked King Ahab and wicked Queen Jezebel. A time when God raised up prophets in the darkness, Elijah and Elisha, great prophets to call people back to repentance. But, but it was a time when very few people would actually listen to them and repent. And Jesus points out that, that Elijah was sent by God, not to any of the Jews, but to a pagan Gentile woman in a foreign place called Zarephath in Sidon, which was where Jezebel was from. And God took care of that poor widow who was not even one of his own people. And then likewise, Jesus points out, Elisha didn't heal any Jewish lepers, but God used him to heal a pagan who had leprosy, a Gentile army officer, in fact, one of the oppressors of that day. And you can be sure that the people in Nazareth get every implication of these outrageous analogies that Jesus draws. That Jesus, their hometown boy, is claiming that they are as wicked and depraved as those living in the time of Ahab. And, and that he's a mighty prophet of God on par with Elijah and Elisha who, who stands with God. And in fact, he's more than that. He's the one anointed Messiah King. And that God has sent him to the poor, to the oppressed, to, to the captives, to the marginalized and the needy and the suffering. God has sent him to poor widows in danger of starvation. God has sent him to outcast lepers rejected and marginalized for society. But guess what? Jesus is claiming he hasn't come for everyone who is poor and oppressed. In fact, he hasn't even come for the poor people of Nazareth. But he has come for their hated enemies, for the Gentiles, for their Roman oppressors. Now you can just imagine all of the emotions going through the minds of those people in the synagogue. Who does this kid think he is? And not only does he have the audacity to claim that he's the one, and that he can offer God's final and glorious salvation. But then he snatches it away and says, no, but it's not for you because you're blind. It's actually for your enemies, for your oppressors. They're the ones God is going to do this for. And so how do they respond? Well, well, how would you respond if you were them? They are so furious, they drag him out and they try to kill him. And that's the story Jesus tells, or Luke tells. And I hope it's a little clearer now why the people of Nazareth got so mad that they tried to throw him off a cliff. 
But what about our original question? Why does Luke even tell this story? And why does he introduce Jesus' public ministry with it? I mean, the first part about Jesus fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy, I can understand. It gives us a great and an inspiring summary of, of what Jesus' salvation and, and the kingdom he, he will bring is, is about. This kingdom, this salvation is, is good news for the poor. There's, there's freedom for the captives and for the oppressed. There's God's favor. There's a new beginning, a new fresh start, a, a jubilee. But why go on and include the, the second part about how Jesus' own people tried to kill him? I think it's to shake us up. And to get us to ask ourselves whether we're blind to Jesus like the people of Nazareth were. Remember, sight for the blind is the key line in Jesus' chiasm. And the people of Nazareth, we discover, were blinded by their familiarity with Jesus and by their politics. They knew that they lived in God's country. And, and they were on God's side, and, and they knew who their enemies were. But those political viewpoints blinded them to what God was actually doing in the world. It blinded them to who Jesus really was, and to the bigger thing God was doing through Jesus. And I suspect that our politics very often blind us too. So here's the question. Do we see Jesus through the lens of uh, our political commitments or our democratic leanings? Do, do you know how Jesus feels about immigration policy and about health care reform and about our prison system and about our social safety net before you even open your Bibles? Do you already know what Jesus believes about these things? Or... Have you let Jesus be the lens through which you view your politics? Do you let Rush Limbaugh and uh, Glenn Beck or uh, NPR and MSNBC influence how you read the Bible? Or do you let Jesus influence how you view and hear what those pundits have to say? I'd have to say that I meet a lot of Christians for whom it's the former. They're a lot more Republican or they're a lot more Democratic in some cases than they are Jesus followers. And guess what? That's as clear as day to much of the surrounding culture. And that's one reason evangelicals have a bad name in America today. Because people out there in the world look at the church and they can't see Jesus through our politics. And so they remain blind to Jesus because we are actually blind to Jesus as well. The only difference is that we claim that we can see, which if we're not careful, can make us like the people of Nazareth who were so familiar with Jesus that they thought they knew who he was and, and what he was like. And yet they were in fact completely blind because of their familiarity and because of their politics. Well, Luke wants to make sure that this isn't true of us. And so he tells this story right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry to warn us 
that Jesus is not going to fit neatly into our political boxes as we continue reading the story of Jesus. That Jesus is going to outliberal the liberals by establishing a kingdom where we learn to care for foreigners and outsiders and to show concern for the poor and to aid the oppressed and where we share with what we have with those in need as the year of Jubilee requires. And yet Jesus is also going to out-conservative the conservatives by befriending and inviting in rich and powerful rulers and, and even oppressive drivers of the political and economic system into his kingdom. Tax collectors, Roman centurions. Because Jesus well recognizes on the one hand that not all of the poor are poor in spirit. Not all of the needy are recognizing their spiritual need. And so not all of the poor and needy have eyes to see who Jesus is and how they can experience the salvation and the freedom that he offers. And yet on the other hand, Jesus also realizes that not all of the rich and the powerful are self-sufficient and disinterested in the good news. Many are longing for the salvation of, of forgiveness and of a clean conscience and of a, a new life of, of service and generosity toward others. And so if anyone, anyone is willing to come to Jesus with a humble heart, with a soft heart, then Jesus can open our blind eyes and can teach us to find our salvation in him and in his kingdom. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, he says, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is an invitation to each one of us. It's also a commission for those of us who follow Jesus to go out and to live this way. To live in this kingdom, fulfilling and representing this amazing vision in our words and in our deeds. Amen. Let's pray. God, you are not a small God in, that can be put in a box that we create. Thank you that Jesus comes to shake us up. Not because he enjoys seeing us shaken up, but because he wants to set us free. And to be set free, he has to open our eyes to see things in new ways. I pray in the weeks ahead as we continue to work our way through the story of Jesus and we get to know him, that our eyes would be open, that we would experience salvation on whole new levels and that we would learn to live in this new kingdom Jesus has invited us into. Amen.